The Exiles movie was released in the UK on the 21st of August 1998, over two months after it debuted in the USA. By the time it was released in British cinemas, uh, there was X-Files paraphernalia all over the place. There were dolls, action figures, there were several books, companions to the movies, all sorts of different merchandise. The posters had been up in the local cinemas for weeks. Uh, fight, future, fight the future showing a swing set, a cornfield and the Antarctic. Hype was big. Uh, there was a lot of stuff. Uh, there were special magazines in newspapers detailing the making of the movie and interviews with the stars and uh, behind-the-scenes personnel. It was a big deal. There was a lot of anticipation for it. I went to see the movie in the Odeon down in Cardiff Bay. I'm sure it was within days of the movie actually being released. I was with my best friend at the time, Gareth, my father... And the three of us went, so we'd booked tickets in advance, and uh, we went, crowded cinema. As the lights went down, there was a hush. You know, there was a lot of buzz in the room. People were very, very excited to see this movie. After the 21st Century Fox uh, fanfare played, and then you hear those first few notes of Mark Snow's score ushering us into this world, I had chills going down my back. This was going to be... Something special. I wanna believe in UFOs and flying saucers and ETs and government conspiracies, but I've seen none of the above. Hello everyone and welcome along to another episode of X-Files Talk X-Files, the only podcast that is a key figure in an ongoing government charade, the plot to conceal the truth about the existence of extraterrestrials. It's a global conspiracy, actually, with key players in the highest levels of power that reaches down to the lives of every man, woman and child on this planet. So, of course, nobody believes me. I'm annoyance <laughs> to my superiors, a joke to my peers. They call me Spooky. Spooky Mother, whose sister was abducted by aliens when he was just a kid and who now chases after little green men with a badge and a gun, shouting to the heavens or to anyone who will listen that the, that the fix is in, that the sky is falling, and when it hits, it's going to be the shitstorm of all time. Bravo. That was really good. Very good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is David, and I have with me tonight, I have Avi Gihara. Hi, Avi. Hi, how are you? I'm doing good. I have Riley Olson. Hi, Riley. Hello. And I have Kai Johnson. Hey. Hey. Thank you all for being here for this very special episode. We are talking about the X-Files movie, or as we fans like to call it, X-Files Fight the Future. So what's everyone's stance on that, by the way? Is it Fight the Future or is it just the X-Files movie? Or is it just it's X-Files? It's the X-Files Fight the Future. Yeah. Really? Uh, yeah. For me, it's just Fight the Future, I gotta say. I mean, when I'm referring to it casually, it would just be Fight the Future. But if I was going to be really 
exact about it, it would be the X Files colon. Fight the <laughs> yes. <laughs> if I if I'm typing it, it's the X Files colon fight the future. But uh, yeah. But Fight the Future didn't actually appear on the screen, I don't think, anywhere, but it was in all the, the publicity posted. stuff, and apparently yeah, on the, on the, everything the title page the of the screenplay, it was subtitled Fight the Future, so that's where it comes mm-hmm. from, if anybody doesn't know. Yeah. So, okay, let's get into this. I mean, we're basically just going to be talking about this movie for the whole podcast today. I'm just going to start off with the very, very beginning of the film, you know, going in there in the packed cinema with all these other fans of the show who, you know, anticipation was high, everybody was looking forward to this, the lights go down, you have those first few notes of the X-Files theme, and it's just like, okay, yeah, something <laughs> special is about to happen, and then suddenly you go from the blackness with the, the black oil creeping across the screen to just blind in white, and then suddenly you, you're in North Texas, 35,000 years BC. You know... We're going from the small square shape of the TV show to this huge canvas on the big screen. And it's a definitely a big canvas because we're going so far back in time. This is going to be something even more epic than we've ever seen on the show before. So what are your thoughts when you first saw the film? Um, you maybe give us a bit of context as to when did you see the film? Did you see it in the theatre when it first came out or did you come along a little later to it? Um, actually, it's funny because Fight the Future for me was like the second thing ever that I thought about the X-Files because my first episode ever that I ever watched was Unrequited. And I actually thought that was a movie um, when I first saw it. I didn't even know that the X-Files existed. And then um, I couldn't watch for a long time until I moved to the States in 98 and I watched on VHS at my house with like my host family because I was an exchange student. And they were the ones that actually explained to me the X-Files and, and, and you know, like um, brought so me to like, like their what? very own baby file. Yeah, I was oh, yeah. so cute. <laughs> um, so it was funny because they had, um, they were like this family that had like, very like self-made home theater system and they had a laser disc and they had like all this stuff and um they slowly started introducing me to all this stuff and uh for me it was just like i i don't think it was it was a there was a better way for me to start being a file but with fight the future because it just started out with a bang you know and and it was just so much and and for all those people that you know whenever they talk about the motivation of making this movie about bringing in new blood and new files and all this stuff it totally worked out for me you know i was one of those people and and i think um not going to move forward and and talk about I want to believe but I think that the magic of fight the future is that at least for me I didn't need to you know know whatever was happening before to understand everything that was happening in this movie and it was engaging enough it had a very compelling and dramatic story with the main characters and it definitely set up for you know I want to definitely continue watching whatever comes after so that was my experience going to fight the future. Nice. Right. 
Um, I am a baby file. Um, not so much anymore because there are like now files who weren't even babies when the X Files started. They were like actually not alive. Um, <laughs> I was alive, but I was I was literally a baby. Um, and I started watching the X Files in June two thousand and seven, which is not that long ago um, compared to everyone else. So I. Um, watched it wasn't on netflix streaming yet but you could get the discs um and it was also aired on tnt and i think sci-fi so i was watching both of them as they worked their way through the series at different points and then supplementing with netflix so it was a little bit out of order (laughs) um would not recommend doing that way because watching the truth first you know like it really it's a little confusing when you don't know like who Mulder and skelly are ideal um and um, so when it got to Fight the Future, it was actually kind of hard to track down. And I ended up, I think, watching it via, like, Amazon before they really had much streaming, but they had Fight the Future. Um, so it was, like, on a small screen. And um, it was 2007. <laughs> it was, like, you know, 10 years after it had been released. Um, and it was just, it was, like, so epic. Like, and I had seen after the movie and I had seen before the movie at that point. Um, but it was like, it's never like a bad thing to watch. Like if I was stranded on a desert Island and I only had like one X-Files like episode I could bring, like I would want to bend the rules and fight the future because it has like a little bit of everything. It has like classic Mulder and Scully investigating. It has like that sexual tension. It has the epic mythology that used to live for during like the sweeping arcs that they did during the show. Um, so it has just like everything. And I mean, if I could like live and fight the future, that'd be great. If I could live in the hallway <laughs> scene specifically, it'd be even better. Like the corner, or maybe I could be like in one of the apartments across from like Mulder, like his neighbor. Like I would be like, people. maybe it could be a people, bee on the wall. Like, yeah. Oh, nah. Um, <laughs> and I would just like watching through the people with my popcorn. Um, that would be good. So a uh, really different experience than most. Um, so when, when the X-Files revival airs in January, that will be the first time I've ever watched the X-Files live, which is going to be an experience, um, as I've stated before, that I will probably need to be sedated for. Um, but yeah, no, it's, You'll miss the it, whole thing. It's, yeah, it's just as epic Uh, on the small screen and it's just as influential um coming from like a totally different side than avi experienced so um i love it it's one of my favorite x-files stories ever kai how about you Um, i I forget whether you were there at the beginning or uh, where you came into the show apparently i'm the only one um yeah i was but I was, I was from the beginning in Australia, so I was about a year behind, and I'd actually just moved to Hawaii when, right before the movie came out. So I kind of missed an entire, like, most of season five. But yeah, the movie was the same out. way. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it was, like, season four when I left Australia, and then I got here. It was, at, like, there was maybe two episodes of season five left and they were like, and the movie's coming out. So it was amazing to go see it in the theater because I was here. I didn't really know anybody. And like, it was, 
my people. I found my people. <laughs> because I'm definitely pretty hard-pressed to find X-Files fans in Hawaii. It's a tiny little island, and it's a kind of a niche little subgenre of fandom. Yeah, so the, it was the actually, internet wasn't what it was today. No, it was yeah. not. So, like, I went down to, like, the theater in Waikiki, and there was, like, people lined up already, and it was just like, I've come home. <laughs> And then actually, like, when the lights went down and it started, it was just like, oh, wow, this is amazing. To see it on the big screen, to hear, like, the f first few notes of the theme, it was it was awesome. Yeah. The whole thing, the whole film, it really, you know, we, we talked before about certain episodes or certain storylines in the show feel like a proper movie. And, you know, especially in season four and five, there was a couple of episodes, you know, which could stand alone as a 45-minute movie. But, uh None of them have the scope, you know, the cinematic sort of quality that this film does. It really does feel like a, a, a big blockbuster film. And, you know, looking back at how much it was made for, it was made for just 60 million plus whatever their marketing costs were. And it grossed about 185 million worldwide. So it wasn't a major film. Um, I, I don't know, you know, going back that far to 98 what the typical sort of figures were for what qualified as a blockbuster film but uh... no i don't think it was a blockbuster because i remember like i wanted to go see it again i saw it twice and i wanted to go see it a third time this was in within like maybe three weeks and it had already been pulled from the theaters then wow yeah i, I remember there being so much hype around it there was so much merchandise oh, so much. there was so much uh, just stuff in like newspapers and stuff that in the UK they would have like special pull-out magazines that you could only get if you bought this particular newspaper filled with all the interviews and photos and stuff. And so there's a lot of hype and attention around it, and uh, it's kind of sad that it didn't become as big I a film. But it's obviously a huge deal to any fans of the show. Definitely. Yeah. I feel like it got overshadowed by like one of the Disney movies came out at the same time as it. Was it like Mulan, maybe? That seems hard oh. to imagine. But, uh, I feel like I don't it was remember. Some, some sort of like huge Disney movie came out, and then like that was the end of that. Wow. At least in Hawaii theaters. I mean, <laughs> it was only a small... I think they only had six screens, so maybe they had to shuffle a little faster here. Maybe. Maybe. Um, so let's go... Let's. Let's get the shipper stuff out of the way. Let's talk Mulder and Scully. I know a bunch of the people <laughs> yes. listening to this are probably eager to get on uh, this. So let's get on to that. All right. So I'm going to go in, just into the fight future hallway scene because uh, on my little deserted island um, where I'm only allowed one X-Files episode, I could just take the hallway scene Let's from see. fight the future and that would be enough. Um <laughs> Um, basically, um, the way I view it and Jess views it, and I think others do too, is it's Scully's acceptance um, in that hallway scene that um, she's in love with Mulder. Um, when she decides to quit the FBI, you know, she goes over to Mulder's and, and she says, you know, I've quit, it's done. And, and she's like, you know, I... Um, um, I didn't debated whether or not to even tell you in person because I knew he cuts her off, but she's gonna say because I knew you try to talk me out of it or you, you know whatever it was she was gonna say you know something along those lines. And when he starts to be like, well, Skelly, it's ridiculous. She she like leaves. She's like, I left the oven on Mulder. I gotta go. 
Um, anything she could do to get out of that room because it is already really hard. I mean, she could not tell him in person because she cares too much about him. And she goes down that hallway and Mulder's like, well, this is ridiculous. Uh, so he follows her and he's the one who starts waxing poetic. Um, and man, she fights him so, so, so hard in that scene. Like she does everything she can to be like, this is not happening. Um, I am a good little Catholic girl and I don't have emotions. So leave me alone um and she fights him so hard until he just he doesn't give her any other option and she you know her tears well up and she's like having trouble breathing and um and when she like falls she just like she like you can just see where she's like defeated where she realizes like well that's just it um and when they have that little hug scene i think like that's where she like gives into it um, and then, of course, um, there is the bee sting heard round the world. Um, and I think a lot of people um, that really was hated that bee. Gro- that was audible groaning in my movie theater when I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> groaning and just, screaming uh, and knowing and whying. Yeah, it, it was, was just... It was like everything you had always wanted. It was just taken away from you at the last minute. And uh, Jess over here, she'd tell the story of how she was in the theater with her mom and she had to go with her mom because she wasn't old enough to see it without her mom. And she jumped up this like puny little like redhead. She's like short now. So she was even shorter then. And she screams at the screen. She like actually yells at it. And her mother pulls her back down because she just like needed to be contained. And Chris Carter um, and his cohorts actually drove around to movie theaters when it premiered to watch fans react to that scene. And he did that because he's sadistic. He's sadistic. Um, and like at the same time, like I admire how evil he is. Like it takes true dedication to be that evil. Um, and you know, everyone hates that bee. Um, and I hated that bee, but, um, I'll try and make this as short as possible. This is Uh, good. This is going to be good. So I'm glad we're getting into this. (laughs) What Jessa and I realized is that the bee that stung Scully actually saved her life. Um, and it shouldn't really be hated, um, because, I mean, yeah, okay, so the bee doesn't sting her, um, one thing leads to another, you know, bee could have stung her when it put her clothes back on, but no, um, you know, uh, what happens is, you know, the syndicate is trying to take away Scully, you know, that which Mulder holds most valuable, that which you can't live without, you know, they're gonna take her away, and they're not gonna, like, send her to, like, a resort in, like, Boca, you know, they're gonna kill her. Um, and they had tried that, you know, in, uh, when Scully is warned by the well-manicured man, you know, they'll kill you one of two ways, you know, it'll be, um, like in your apartment, um, or it'll be someone, you know, or, you know, they, he explains to her how they operate and the syndicate has made that decision again, that, um, to control Mulder, we need to take away, you know, the person he can't live without, you know, the person that's keeping him going on this journey. Um, and so, you know, the syndicate's been watching them. We know, we see in the film that the syndicate has been watching them. They know where they are. So obviously, like, they had the chance to take out Scully, but they're not just going to shoot her wherever. Um, they're going to do it um, properly. They have, like, tried and tested methods that they know work, um, as we saw with Melissa. Um 
And so if that bee doesn't sting her, eventually Scully has to go home. I mean, from her appearance, it's pretty clear that she hasn't been home. She hasn't changed. She's, uh, you know, covered in corn dust when she goes to the FBI. Um, She then, you know, realizes that she's going to have to transfer. So she hands her resignation letter to Skinner and then she goes directly to Mulder's. Um, and she would have gone home and, you know, that's where I think they would have shot her. They would have killed her. Um, they would have taken her away from Mulder so that, you know, his quest would have been paralyzed. Uh, but instead, uh, when the bee stings Scully, uh, obviously I think it's accepted that Mulder's phone line would have been tapped. I mean, there's nothing he would have been able to do to stop that. And they would have been monitoring him. And we find out even later on that they're monitoring them more than they even knew. So uh, when she gets stung, that presents them with a different opportunity to take her away and make her a part of a larger project that they're still researching and working on. So uh, had she not been stung, I think she would have likely ended up dead. So I, I think it's even more brilliant when you realize that that B is like awful and horrible is actually like the turning point that ends up saving Scully's life. That was a little bit long, but I appreciate you guys. Taking <laughs> <laughs> so there. it's a nice theory. I like it. The B couldn't have waited like five minutes though. I mean, come on. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, clearly from the deleted kiss scene, it could have waited by, like, it could have just watched for a few minutes. I mean, (laughs) that would have been fine. Um, But, I mean, either way, I think the bee isn't that bad, which is, like, horrible. After the bee. Yeah, yeah. All right, it's not that bad. And um, also Mulder and Scully had an adorable moment, so that was good, too. We get some other nice moments between them earlier on in the movie as well. Like I'm thinking about the first scene that we see them in on the roof on the rooftops. Yeah, and the whole pretending the door is locked and I had you, I had yeah. you big time. You had nothing. No, I love that scene. I feel it's like quintessential. You jiggle the handle. It is. She's like extra skeptical and extra like explaining all the things and telling him why it can't possibly be and he's extra like obnoxious and jokey and it's just quintessential Mulder and Scully on the rooftop. I love that scene. It is really good Mulder and Scully. And I've also written down in their elevator in the Fight the Future building which incidentally has not been blown up so if you didn't know that still exists. <laughs> That's a little bit of trivia. That building is actually in LA. Uh, and it's home for many production companies, and um, it's used all the Every time show ever to, to shoot a lot of the Every either show. hospitals or banks or convention centers. It's, it's used for everything, even though it's one of the most difficult locations to shoot in L.A. Because there are so many companies that actually function in that building that the security measures that they take are pretty inconvenient for productions. So uh, I, used to, I, I used to go there all the time because one of the, the companies that are there, I'll, it's the company where they give you all the permits to shoot in L.A. And yes. Yeah, and I would like... Film L.A.? Yeah, film L.A. And I, it, it, for me, it was a treat every time. And people hate going to go and, and pick up permits because it's just a hassle. And I would be the one always volunteering, like, I'll, I'll go. 
I'll go just because <laughs> it's like it will give me a chance to just like roam the building because once you got the clearance Fuck to go, you can enough. actually go elsewhere. And yeah. you know, I would like walk the the lawn or go get something from the vending machine. Yeah, whatever. I mean, <laughs> there it are no vending machines. Yeah, there. it doesn't it doesn't quite work that way. They totally <laughs> reworked how, but the lobby is still like the the counter is still there. And um and you and you can totally to pick up the yeah phone. you can totally make <laughs> there's like a security yeah. guard there really confused yeah. as to who this like five foot three like Venezuelan woman is yelling at him and make it happen. Well, I try my best to look the the same, but like um, Roy has worked in productions with me before, and she 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 went with me, and we totally ran outside the lobby and filmed ourselves, and it was totally fun. And they're so used to this because either you're doing it because you're scouting a location, or because you're an X Files fan that has been covertly, you know, <laughs> gotten into the building. But you know, it's it's funny, and it's, I'm here it's, for the permits. The permits, God yeah. damn it. There's no time. There's no time, though. And when this building cleared and evacuated in ten minutes, when you call the city fire department, have them block off and moderators around this building. Okay. Right, can you quote like the entire film? <laughs> That's pretty much what we do. <laughs> I could definitely do every line in the film. Let's talk about some of the new characters that come into the movie that we haven't seen before. Um, yes, it's you, Michelle. Yes, Darius Michelle. This is his second of three roles in the X-Files, because he is three different people. <laughs> and uh, his moustache gets its own credit in the uh, closing <laughs> titles of this. It is a superior moustache, I think. Um, and honestly, he, he was just like, he was really good in the like, what, like five minutes he was on? Like everyone he was knows he was hardly in it, but he his presence looms large, for yes, sure. Yes, it does. And him watching that bomb tick down and blow up is kind of heavy, especially right after the Oklahoma City bombing, which was like a year before uh, this came out. I think they had already shot it, but um, I think they were worried about that initially um, because it, it had such, like, large national ramifications and it was still kind of a, a really sad spot for the country but um it didn't seem to be a problem so and of course we have the wonderful um mark snow score title for that bit is soda pop <laughs> <laughs> always makes me smile <laughs> even just watching the movie at that point so yeah we have uh we have him we also have um Braunschweig, who shows up in that awesome a uh, little sequence there after the kids have fallen down the holes. He turns up in the helicopter. We have all the trucks coming in behind him and fireman's in his face going, what about my man? <laughs> and, uh, pulls out his so cell phone and, you know, the whole, the plan that we never, well, the, what is the actual quote? Come on, someone knows it. They have no the idea. scenario that the we didn't yes. plan. Yeah, the impossible scenario we never planned for. Well, yeah. we better come up with a plan. <laughs> helicopter sound. <laughs> <laughs> and Kirchweil yes him and his books no one believes him he's a toiler, a crank impressive <laughs> oh, oh, I'm just going to sit back and let somebody quote the whole movie to me <laughs> <laughs> 
That's not a problem. I'm sure no one would listen to it, but we would have a good time. <laughs> no, they're, they're good characters that they... I mean, they make rather small appearances, but... Um, I mean, that being said, we remember, like, everyone that was in Fight the Future, but they all did a pretty good job. They've I, all got a good amount of, like, vague Chris Carter monologuing going on, so... Yeah. Yes. They're, they're very memorable. Now, I have a theory about Kirchweil. Yes. Because uh, this is when we, uh, a podcast or two ago, when we were talking about travelers, I was doing some research on that. And there's a bit where Bill Mulder gets called into, I think the guy's name is Con, into Con's office. And um, there's somebody leaning up against the filing cabinets, just like Cigarette Smoking Man does in the pilot episode in Blevin's office. And the theory was from these notes that that was young Cigarette Smoking Man. And obviously it's not played by Chris Owens, because at this point he's identifiable as Jeffrey Spender to us. So I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, it's kind of sad that if that's the case that we have young CSM there, but it's a different actor because of that. And I was actually thinking, well, maybe that wasn't him. Maybe that was a young Kirchval. That's interesting. He maybe had that sort of connect, because he was obviously part of the syndicate back then. He went through... You know, same sort of institutions as Mulder did, mm. and maybe he was there at the beginning with that. And uh... I feel like we should ask Chris Carter. I mean, then he won't answer, but he'll give us like a nice little cryptic and be like, "Well, maybe you'll find out." And of course, we won't. But um, he'll <laughs> tell he'll, us. Or he'd be like, "White Buffalo Mobile? No, that's just a complete coincidence. It, <laughs> <laughs> nothing to do with anything." <laughs> that's interesting. I don't think I've heard that. Um, interpretation of it before, so I guess and it was just a rather succinct theory. Factoid so. got stuck mm-hmm. in my head, and then the whole Kirchhoff thing. Well, maybe yeah, I like at, it. At this point, they knew that he was going to be there when they were writing Travelers. So mm-hmm. yeah. there you go. That's my contribution. <laughs> it's a lot faster than my theory, so I applaud you on the the ability. You, and that, <laughs> and that was just that. the shortest of your two theories that you're going to be yeah. sharing with us. So. When we get to the end. I oh. I could summarize it in four pages instead of eight. It'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Let's um, go from Kirchbahn, who you know his function in this movie is another informant for Mulder after the previous three have come to unsavory ends at this point. Um, so there's a pattern emerging here. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to talk about Kirchbahn's killer, the well manicured man, Aww. and. You know, I'm watching the movie again. I'm trying to think about stuff to talk about in this podcast. I'm kind of thinking it's okay. First of all, first of all, I I can't pass this up is that obviously, you know, I grew up in the UK. I watched the movie in the UK with a British audience. And when you cut to his English residence, biggest laugh of the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Because, of course, the Americans think that we all live in the fucking mansions. <laughs> with the yep, kids. Well, the well manicured man does because he only lives in well manicured estates and well manicured <laughs> of the countryside in England, where his family has lived for generations because he is from a wealthy, established mm-hmm. family. Yeah, that, okay. 
That may be, but... <laughs> he's probably, like, in line, like, 46th in line for the throne, too. Like, he's probably con- weirdly connected like that. He's, he's most definitely a lord, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just a general sort of... You know, th- it wasn't groaning because of the bees thing. It was groaning because, yes, of course, that's that's typical British <laughs> in the eyes of Americans. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he wasn't Australian then, or he would have rode in on a kangaroo. <laughs> no, he would have rode in in the pouch of the kangaroo, not on it. This is true, this is true. But uh, I, I, I think that, you know, well now, I think this is a large part of the movie is him. This is his kind of arc. And, you know, it's kind of operatic in a way that his storyline here, that he's the guy who is sort of wrestling with his conscience and he's the guy who ultimately then helps Mulder to reconnect with Scully. And, you know, I've said on here before that I think a lot of the mythology in season five is kind of just treading water a little bit because they knew where season four ended up and they knew where the movie was going to be and they had to sort of fill the gap and sort of do some stuff, give us a little bit more, some new things... But at the end of the day, we could have gone into the movie, as me and Kai apparently did, just, <laughs> just from watching Tunguska Turma and then Zero Sum. And you could yep. kind of connect the dots for Fight the Future at that point. But what does happen in Season 5 is actually really interesting when you think about Well Manicured Man. So in Tunguska Turma, his lover has been killed by um, Vasily Peskov. And, you know, that's a personal tragedy for him, that he's lost somebody very close to him because of this conspiracy that he's involved with. And then when you go into Patient X and the Red and the Black, you know, it's kind of him that has the pangs of conscience when he sees Maria infected with the black oil and, you know, he wants to test the vaccine, give it time, see if it works. And everybody else is kind of indifferent to that. They just want to move on with figuring out how they're going to deal with the faceless aliens. And so I think that by the time the movie comes around, you know, he's maybe got some feelings for Mulder and Scully too, because, you know, they, they do keep getting in the way. And that, um, you know, he probably knows the sort of backstory about um, Mulder's parentage as well a little bit. And so I think that, you know, he's sort of maybe acting on his conscience and maybe he sees the same that Bill Mulder saw that maybe... Fox can go in and he can be the one who brings about the end of this conspiracy that has betrayed the people of Earth and that, you know, maybe he does have some sympathy for Mulder and Scully, sees that there's some sort of connection there and that's maybe another reason why he goes to Mulder and helps him to find her, gives him the coordinates and the vaccine and he obviously gets to then see a big part of what's going on behind the scenes with the conspiracy and I just... I just think that there's a big sort of operatic sort of character arc there for Well Manicured Man in this movie and that you can trace it back uh, to some of those earlier episodes. He's my favorite syndicate member, so I was rather upset when, spoiler alert, his limo explodes. Although uh, I think that's why a part of why he's so beloved by the fandom yeah, is because, because he, he sacrifices he Scully. himself. Yeah, he saves um, Scully and then he sacrifices himself so nobody finds out. And... 
And he, like, I just want to listen to him talk all the time, too. <laughs> yes. It's just, it, and in, um, on the extended edition of Fight the Future, um, in the limo, he and Mulder talk much more extensively about the conspiracy. I mean, he, like, lays it out. Um, I mean, it's not stuff we don't, like, really come to know that can't be pieced together, but he really lays it out, and it's a much longer scene. So if people haven't seen that, they should watch it because it's really good. And I remember the first time <laughs> I saw that's the default version on the DVD, isn't it? The lo- the extended? Yeah. I don't know. Um, I want to say that it is, but I'm not sure. Hopefully. I remember the first time I saw it, I was like really confused. I was like, this is not a line in the movie. I know because I know every line. <laughs> Avi, do you have any feelings on the world that you would been? I feel like... I mean, just recently watching uh, one of the earlier episodes whenever he he comes out, I feel like from the beginning, he was very protective of Mulder's quest. And I feel like he understood uh, from where Mulder came from even better than his own father or any of his fathers, to be honest. (laughs) Uh, Because I feel like he was truly the one person that was able to be a family man. And that that allowed him to still feel, you know, I guess not sorry for Mulder, but he had empathy that empathy for him. Yeah, and it was sort of for me, even though he was obviously involved and obviously had some kind of version of evil to himself, he still, you know, he was still someone that I would have thought that he was redeemable in some way you know so like maybe he was working towards the greater good or he thought he was yeah i i think yeah that he was the one that wasn't like hitler you know that hitler also thought that he was working for the greater good but it was his own version of the greater good but he was he probably held higher that universal meaning of the greater good other than oh i know better than you you know so and his uh, the scene with his grandson breaking his leg, it not only serves to delay his entrance into the meeting, but I think it's a good example of the kind of person he is because he shows up and he's like, my yeah, grandson absolutely. broke his leg. And they're like, well, that's a freaking terrible excuse. Like, who cares? <laughs> they're like, you know, my grandson fell and broke his leg and I left him there to die. Like, <laughs> like teach him a lesson, um, you know. But he was like, well, I had seen that. He probably, like, picked him up gently and, like, carried him into the house and then, like, got got the driver to bring the car around and then, like, carried him out. You know, it was probably, like, a very touching moment. So I love that you have a deeping backstory for everything. She totally has a fanfic over the scene and it was, like, 10 seconds long. (laughs) (laughs) But that tells you just how important, you know, those little tidbits about, you know, backstory because if we didn't have that, even though, you know, we, we do still have certain important scenes from before, from which I base my assessment on him. If we didn't have that one, probably I didn't feel the same. Uh, or I didn't feel that strongly about him, you know. Yeah, it shows his humanity more, which is nice. Because you don't see a lot of humanity in the syndicate. The syndicate. Mm-hmm. And what humanity you do see is often snuffed out rather quickly. <laughs> so. 
Well, of course, he was the one that approached Scully back in the Blessing, the blessing way, way and did that whole, you know, explained the whole thing of how they're going to kill her. Yeah. Which ties into your beast. Scully is remarkably calm. If someone came up to me and was like, they'll kill you one of two ways, I'd be like... You'd be running screaming from that cemetery. (laughs) I would, like, have a gun to his face already. Um, Or I'd be, like, crying somewhere else. But um, next plane to Bermuda. Yeah. (laughs) Instead, she's just like, well, I'll just carry this gun with me and um, have my sister come over. Sorry, Melissa. (laughs) My sister come over. Oh. Sorry, I'm good. I'm invincible. I, I don't. She was about ready to take out Skinner, though. You know, she shot Mulder. She could have shot Skinner too. Been fine. Anyway. Yeah, I think Skinner is one of the characters that is really shortchanged in the movie. You know, he's just stuck there in this panel hearing, giving his sort of concerned looks now and yeah, then. That is basically Skinner's job during yeah. like the beginning of the X Files is to like look concerned in Mulder and Skelly's direction. Preferably <laughs> while sitting behind a desk. Um it, then if he could like rub his temples in like a concerned fashion and remove Maybe his a heavy sigh from Yeah, and then put them back on. Um, that was like a good five seasons of his job. Um, and then, you know, he, he, Mitch said today actually that he viewed, um, Skinner as Mulder and Scully's champion. And you don't see that in the very beginning, but it comes more and more obvious. And, um, I think Skinner is actually one of the main reasons Mulder was able to get down to Antarctica in time because of his connections, um, to save Scully. Um, and then obviously, especially in season eight, I mean, you see just how caring he is and, um, how much work he can put in. I think, in the other seasons because Mulder and Scully are there together. Like there's not, um, the need to see it like as much. And a lot of it's behind the scenes, so to speak. Um, but you know, obviously his affection for them grows, but, um, yeah, he, he could have done a little bit more. He was kind of like there a little bit and not much else, (laughs) but you know, at least he didn't like wake up dead next to a hooker again. It could have been worse. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, we just have that very fleeting scene with the lone gunman as well. Well, the which, lone gunman have to be there. Of course they do. I think that was got a big cheer with them just coming up on screen. Uh, yep. Back when I saw it for the first time. But yeah, I mean, they're two minutes and they're gone. I feel like they could have been used a lot better had they... They could have helped Ben get to Antarctica. They could have. Been... Yeah, that's what I was going well, to say. Well, they did, but you just don't see it. We just didn't see that. it. Huh? It is, however, in the eight page paper I wrote with Jessa about how Mulder's going to go back from Antarctica. Mm-hmm. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> you know, I know, but, you know, we're covering a couple of the threads that are leading us there, so I was just pointing it out. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Let's talk about, um, I guess, the big revelation, you know mythology wise you know we've talked about how you know Tunguska zero sum you know you can pretty much connect the dots and get to fight the future but the the big change that we have here is realizing that once you're infected with the black oil the little alien babies gestate inside you and uh, when they get out they're a little bit cranky just a tad so a little bit what are people's thoughts on on that big revelation that shift in where we're going with the mythology now 
kind of amps it up quite a bit. Like before, you're like, oh, a slave race. That's not that bad. Um, but when you realize that, you know, giant, like, vicious, uh, like, monsters will claw their way out of your abdomen, you're, like, a little bit more concerned about the conspiracy that's going to kill everyone. Um, it's also, like, we, you don't usually get to see aliens in the X-Files, but we saw some really great aliens in Fight the Future. Um, and the, I mean, when, um, you know, they're trying to inoculate the body with the vaccine, but it's already gestated, that whole scene with the alien is so creepy, and I have no idea why he doesn't climb back up the ladder like any sane, rational person. They could have, like, darted the alien from above. My favorite bit in that scene is when he looks up the ladder, he's like, I need help down here, and there's two guys, and one of them just looks yeah. at the other and sort of nods. Yes. <laughs> God, you go. We'll, we'll call someone, it'll be fine. Um, and then the alien that, like, chases Mulder and Scully up from, like, whatever kind of shoot they're in in, like, the alien spaceship, um, and they climb up to the end. That's, like, it gets me every time. It, like, jumps up, and then the steam comes up, and it goes away. But um, it makes it a lot scarier, I think. And then you see it right after Fight the Future again, so... Yeah, that whole last 30 minutes of the movie, that's where it goes into big budget sort of blockbuster yeah. territory. After the beast thing and the <laughs> escape from hospital, you know, after that, it, everything is just on a We're massive gonna scale. We're going to need a snow cat and also a giant alien spaceship. So if you could just budget that in. Yeah, we're going to inside it and then we're going to see it fly above us. And there's also going to be domes on the Antarctic. So if we could just fly a little crew down there, it'll be fine. It'll be okay. And it speaks a lot about the quality that Matt Beck put on those graphics because I'm a big fan of the Matrix and I remember that even four years later or like whenever the the whole of the trilogy came out, those graphics still stood really close to what the Wachowski brothers did for the Matrix and that was really quality work. I think that was money well spent to be quite honest. Yeah, oh, it's good yeah. Um, on the Blu-ray, um, some stuff doesn't translate as well, like, um, when, you know, the black oil is infecting the eyes, um, after, you know, he's fallen down the, the hole, um, and he got the wind knocked out of him. Um, you know, it gets, it, on the Blu-ray, it's, like, orange, but when Mulder's in the spaceship in Antarctica, like, the graphics of the ship and, like, the, like, industrial, like, black and steam like it holds up really well on the blu-ray i think like it still looks really good really believable um and you know that they yeah definitely money well spent um it still holds up nicely i think now rob Bowman did a good job and you know it wasn't a huge budget and obviously movies didn't cost then what they cost now but um you know it's still a pretty small budget by comparison of some of the other blockbusters and you know, he made every dollar count, and it's just a shame that he went and did something with dragons after this. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's for sure one of my favorite directors on the TV show, and, you know, he does a really, really good job here. Um, okay, let's talk about things that should have been in the movie but weren't. Number one, Krychek. Why not? Yeah. He's, like, well-manicured man's right-hand man, you know, in the end, going straight into this. And then he's not in the movie. 
And then it was like, okay, well, maybe he'll be in the second movie when it comes along. And, <laughs> no, thank you, Skinner, <laughs> for that one. If we were if we were gonna talk about Krysak showing up in moments that you least expected, or not showing up, I mean, I don't I, I don't understand why he was in the truth at all. No. And yeah. then, but, yeah, th- like, but don't you think it would be kind of nice in this bit where Mulder's got Scully over his shoulder, trying to get out, and he's trying to get through a door or something. He just and Rat Boy at just the end of the corridor, he sees an open door, and Crychek's there, smiles at him, and just slams the door, but and then Krychek he's got to go up the vent. Wouldn't, he wouldn't be back working with them in Arica, though, right? He wouldn't. Uh, you can never tell with Crychek. Well, he was driving I mean, well manicured man around during the end. Yeah, I kind of, I don't, I don't know, I wouldn't trust him, but. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess I were, Yeah, he, I yeah mean, that's, that's true, you know, even though he's working with them again, they probably don't trust him to take them to their biggest treasure that the they have He's not the most effective buried. of bad guys either, like, if you're going to have a henchman, I don't know he's, if you necessarily want to try that, because he screws yeah. it up a lot. Yes. Like, every time, just about, he <laughs> does a bad job. <laughs> um... Yeah, I mean, I mean, they they had to like work to give Skinner. You the know, only place you know, they I had to work to get the one with Gunman in. Crycheck would be driving the ambulance. Um, yeah, I was take Skelly off. Yeah. He, if he was the ambulance driver, that would be that would work for me. But then he would probably miss when he shot Mulder. You know what? It's, he's probably just been sitting in Scully's apartment the whole time, waiting for her to waiting get back. Waiting for her to get back. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> that's where he that's is. What's that's where Crycheck is. He's in Scully's apartment. He's like reading through some of her medical textbooks, waiting for her. Maybe I don't know. Does watching the. A very good question to ask either Chris Carter or Frank because I, I mean I don't I I don't justify actually him missing from this movie. Like I totally justify him not being on the truth, but I don't justify him not being here because he was alive. He had been threatened. He was part of the whole Tunguska and everything. And yeah, he was back. You know, he came back in season five, yeah. so he yeah. was there then. Okay, great. They didn't know that when they read when they wrote the movie, but yeah, I feel like he yeah. should have been there. Let's write this down for the next interview. What, was like Nicholas Leah doing something else when they were filming? Could they maybe just not get him? Well, I, when did he shoot Vertical Limit? That's the biggest thing that he was doing around this sort of time. Don't know. Maybe. I don't know. We'll talk. I imagine it was because, you know, last time that we'd seen him at the point they wrote the movie, he had, you know, sort of betrayed Mulder and he was in Russia. And Mm. maybe they didn't know how he was going to come back from that. And it was maybe something they wanted to deal with in the show. And. But yeah, it'd just be nicer (laughs) if they kind of thought a little bit ahead that he's probably going to come back in season five. So let's stick him in here. Probably. But yeah, ask the question. I would love to like to get some some closure on that because that always bothers me. <laughs> I never thought about that before. But yeah, let's just say he was sitting in Scully's apartment waiting. Waiting. Yeah, I like. Uh, honestly, Fight the Future was like long. I don't know that they would have let them go any longer. But they could have done a close, you know, like a 
like the Marvel movies do these days, like a post credit sting or something where he's sitting, he's still sitting, he's still sitting in there. He gets a phone call. And the guy's like, dude, Mulder and Scully, they were just like on this, on our spaceship in Antarctica and they escaped and stuff. And now they're back and, sitting uh, here for five days. <laughs> he's like, what? Yeah. And he's just, he's just Layla like, Harrison calls him. He's just got cheese its powder all over his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so what stuff haven't we touched on? What stuff have we got to talk uh, about? How Mulder is going to get back from Antarctica. <laughs> right, take it away. This is your theory of how Mulder and Scully got back from Antarctica at the end of the movie. Yes, and it is backed by a remarkably large amount of evidence that I can direct people to read after the podcast. Um, so, okay, so Mulder needs to get down to Antarctica, which isn't an easy thing to do, even like nowadays. Um, it's uh, kind of at the end of the winter season by that point, because we're winding down summer, um, you know, in the Northern Hemisphere. So um, they're winding down winter. So it would have been harder to get there. Um, on top of that, Mulder's going to need resources down there that he he's not going to have access to. I mean, the cliche is that Mulder has all this money because his parents are really wealthy, and that's probably true. But um, to be able to get resources, to have the snow cat, to be able to get even remotely close to where Scully is being held, which is basically in the middle of the continent. It's almost like the, the farthest. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's close. It's a little, but it's um, very, very far away from anything. Um, so Mulder needs resources and the best place to get those resources in Antarctica is McMurdo station, which is, um, America's biggest and the biggest base in Antarctica. Um, and it is operated by, um, the U S Antarctic, uh, project, which is run by the national science foundation. It's a national agency. So, um, that's something that you're going to have to finagle kind of on the political side. And I think that's where Skinner comes in. I think he, opens up those connections you find out in triangle that you know he clearly has the ability to get like satellite and and coordinates from um you know Mulder when he went after the queen anne um so skinner has some pull you know he may be looked down upon by um some of the people in charge but he's got connections he's got military history so Mulder goes down he goes down via um, Christchurch, New Zealand, because that's where the clo uh, cold weather um, clothing distribution center is. And he takes an LC-130, which is a ski-equipped, um, uh, really big plane, basically. And it's run by the U.S. Uh, or the U.S. the New York Air National Guard. Um, and he goes down, he flies in. At this point, like, some serious time has passed. Um, you know, he needs to get down there. It takes, like, you know, minimum like 24 hours to make the flight from, you know, the East Coast down to like Australia, New Zealand. Um, so he doesn't have a lot of time. And remember, it's 48 hours later. So then he has like another 24 to get to Scully. So um, he stops at McMurdo Station. Now, McMurdo Station has snowcats. They have everything. But it is um, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away. I think I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but is very, very far away. There's no way he could take his snowcat and just like go and drive to Scully. Like it's not possible. There's no snow tank that has that kind of gas mileage. You couldn't even take a helicopter that distance. Like the president's helicopter couldn't fly that far. Um, and there's also an, uh, the Transantarctic mountain range, which is in the way between like McMurdo and the center of the continent. So Mulder's going to have to fly there, but 
there's not a landing strip there and no pilot is going to land somewhere that's uncharted and unsafe. They could land on like a frozen lake and the plane could sink that you'd never, you'd never know it was there if it's covered in snow. So um, the closest base is, um, this Russian base, the pole of inaccessibility. It was no longer operable at the time, but it had a runway and it had been charted. And the LC-130 um, has, or can be equipped with JATO rockets, which can take off from rough surfaces. So um, what Mulder is going to do is he's going to fly from McMurdo uh, and he's doing a lot, which, you know, this is crazy. So he has to have really good pull with, you know, the people in charge of this program to allow him to do something like that. So I think Skinner really came through for him. Um, and, well, how's he going to get to Skelly from there? Well, he can snowcat it from there. Um, so what they'll do is they'll load up the LC-130, they'll fly, he's going to take the snowcat, and he's going to go off. Um, it's kind of crazy that they let him go off alone, but he might have been concerned that if they saw him coming and there was a lot going on that they'd just kill Skelly. So he snowcats, whatever. And then um, his fuel... He taps it, you know, it's like he's concerned that it's low, like it's lower than it should be. And I think that um, he developed a leak in the high pressure fuel system because it's a gradual leak. If, if like the tank punctured, it would have just emptied and he would have been like stuck. You know, he was running out of fuel, but the snowcat he was using, even if it had the smallest tank possible, it still would have been possible to make the round trip from the pole of inaccessibility to base one where Skelly's being held. So Mulder's like snow canning along. He's a little concerned that he doesn't have gas to get back, but there's not a lot he can do about it. Like he needs to get to Scully. He needs to give her the vaccine. He doesn't have an option. Um, and so he's, you know, riding along, you know, we all see what happens there, but it's how do they get back from there? His snow cat is presumably almost empty with gas. Um, you know, how are they going to survive right then and there is the big question. Obviously it's like sunny in Antarctica. It wouldn't be at that time of year. So that's kind of a, a filming choice. They couldn't have just made it like all dark and gloomy. It looks a lot better when it's shiny, but it's still really cold and exposure is going to kill them. So they climb into the snow cat, which would have been equipped with, um, a heater on a separate fuel source. And they would have, he would have been equipped with backup, a little backup fuel. He would have had, um, blankets. He would have had a first aid kit, food, water, etc. Um, and they can stay in there and he can contact the LC-130 that's waiting. I think it's, I don't know, like it's not that far away. Um, and what they would have done, you don't go anywhere this remote without backups for your backups. So I think they would have taken two snowcats with them. And I think he would have basically, he would have just radioed them and he would have said, come get us. And I think they would have come, they would have picked him up. Um, they would have gone back. They would have flown to McMurdo. There's a hospital on McMurdo. They would have treated them, stabilized them, and then sent them home. Um, but during that time while they were waiting, there was like de definitely a moment where like the sun went down and they got to watch the Southern lights because that's the type of thing that would happen in fanfic. <laughs> and that's what makes it all worth it is that they got to watch the Southern lights together. Um, and then they fly back and, um, that is the condensed version of how Mulder and Skelly got back from Antarctica. And I will take any questions. I would just like you to give you a round of applause. Like, so condensed. That was amazing. Right? I told you it was not going to be that bad. Because when I read the theory, I'm pretty sure it took me like at least half an hour. It was a little bit long. But Frank Spotnitz seems to like it, so it's fine. Frank Spotnitz approves. So uh, I have a question. So yes. 
he, the reason that his snowcat had to have the slow leak of fuel yeah. is so that it was stopped far enough away that it wasn't on top of the spaceship so that when all the ice lifted up into the sky... It didn't just fall down. Exactly. <laughs> that would have been, yeah, it would have been rather unfortunate because uh, they would have been really screwed. Um, I mean, they would have known where he was going. So, I mean, there's... I'm, a lower chance of survival that way but they i think if he wasn't back in a certain amount of time they would have gone out and get him and what he wanted to do was crazy i mean lc-130 would have like a a decent number of people on board it's not just like a pilot that would have taken him there would have been a staff and they could have come and gotten him um and scully but um I mean, I know, I think in, like, the comic, there's, like, a reference that, like, oh, Cigarette Smoking Man, like, filled his snowcat with gas, but Mulder's snowcat leaked. Like, there's no way that he, he would, like, what, did he not fill up the tank before he left? Like, there's no way that would work. On top of that, like, the Cigarette Smoking Man have 50 gallons of fuel in, like, a portable container that was he gonna do like suck on the hose like home style and suction it into the like it's not that makes no sense at all and i need to speak to chris carter about it because that's ridiculous um so it doesn't like that i think that was just like thrown in there but it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense i mean even if he cigarette smoking man had to like his minion fill it up like you're talking he needs like a lot of gasoline. It's not like a, the little like container you use to fill your lawnmower. You're talking like a barrel of gasoline to fill this thing. So, um, I think it makes less sense <laughs> that that's actually true. And I mean, we we can go into like the depths of like what type of radio he used and why that was better for the train. But I, I will spare you. But um, <laughs> yes. I wanted to know how they got back. So Jessa and I, um, Jessa's not here tonight, but Jessa and I worked really hard to figure out every variable we could because this was what we considered one of the biggest mysteries in the X-Files fandom. Um, and we wanted to know how they got back and we thought it was something that you could solve. So we took every variable possible. Um, I considered contacting the New York Air National Guard to ask them questions, but I didn't want to be arrested, so... <laughs> Jesus Christ! Oh, I love it. Uh, who says X Files are obsessed? <laughs> I'm not obsessed. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm passionate. <laughs> passionate. There you go. It took us a while. It's not like we like we did this like 72 hours straight. We like worked at it little by little. This was like your thesis for like six months, wasn't it? Yeah, it was like well, yeah. we started it two years or like a year and three quarters before we published it um and yeah but no we worked on it pretty hardcore for a few months um there were places where we got stuck and then we'd work so much and then we'd realize that there was still like all these other variables to consider but um i think it's the most likely scenario um it fits with experts that we talked to because we did talk to experts. Oh, experts. <laughs> yeah, and those experts are cited at the bottom of the paper. Yes, uh, I enjoy um, the citations. It's almost as long as the paper. <laughs> like a page plus. So, so uh, people who haven't actually read this and you're listening to this, you can find this on xfilesnews.com. Yes. You can um, read the yeah. whole thing if that wasn't yeah. enough. <laughs> you just go to XFN, you click on blogs. Jess and I write a blog called On the Verge, which is right under the little blog up symbol up top and um it's the first blog entry 
Um, it's got convenient pictures for your viewing <laughs> pleasure. There's even a little GIF. So <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. And, gas and not stuff. only did Frank spot it's liked it, but also Anne Simon, who was a who's a Science, uh, science advisor for Chris Carter. We also buses. worked out the timeline, um, how to get to and from, how long it would take to do it all, so that you could arrive at the precise time and all that stuff. There's also well, a Chris map. Chris Carter's just like throwing a dart at a map. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's like, this out of his has, ass. No, the, <laughs> the coordinates given, and you know, it says cor- it gives the coordinates for base one, and then it says it's in Wilkesland, and it's actually nowhere near Wilkesland, but Wilkesland has a, um, I think it's like a big meteor crater, um, and I think that's why they used it, because it has like connotations with space and stuff like that mm. um but it's nowhere near wilkes land it's not we went by the we went by the coordinates because we spoke to frank about it and he said that if we're going to base anything we should base it off the coordinates and not wilkes land so fair enough that's why now you know <laughs> okay i think that exhausts <laughs> our discussion <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, right. for this very special episode, we have a very special quiz. And oh, well, kind it, of. It's special for me because I didn't have to come up with all of the questions. Well, some of these are really easy, but you're also not going to I hope you are going to stump him like he stumps no, us. Okay, so my understanding is that uh, Jessa actually wrote these questions, but unfortunately she couldn't be here to record this podcast today. Yes, but they're yeah. just really on Fight the Future. There's um, some pretty simple ones. I have no doubt that you'll answer. Um, and then there's um, a couple. Basically, there's like one hard one and then like nine not hard ones. Um, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't here. I was I was with David Duchovny. It's a long story. Um, <laughs> so, um, number one. And feel free to edit any of these out. Okay. Number one, what year does the movie open? 98. 35,000 BC. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, see what she did there. That was tricky. Okay. Um, Where did Mulder go to get drunk after the OPR meeting? A bar? Casey's bar. Casey's bar. Casey's. Yeah. David. All right, this one is a give me. What does the main bad guy smoke? Morley cigarettes. There you go. Um, uh, this is a good one. Who was holding the dead Africanized honeybee in Mulder's hospital room after he was shot? Oh, damn. Afrohiki? Uh, yep. That's good. <laughs> good job. All right. You must get this one. Um, what was the working title of Fight the Future? Blackwood. There you go. Okay. Yeah. With an error margin of plus minus 2.5 seconds, how long does Boulder <laughs> gaze to Sully's eyes in the infamous hallway scene? If you read over... How long does he gaze? <laughs> um, Jessel, time what? this in triplicate with a stopwatch. So this is an accurate number. What is my margin of error? Point uh, plus or minus two point five seconds. Uh, five seconds. It is thirty-two point seven six seconds. What? What? Yes. <laughs> wow. yes. That's a lot of gazing. 
Is there speaking during this gazing, or is this just silent gazing? Um, I cannot comment on the conditions under which this was tested because I wasn't present for the testing. Did she have two stopwatches, one close to the TV and one close to her while she was doing this timing? I, there's no way I was going to get that one. I'm the gazing. The margin of error is 2.5 seconds. Okay, so my logic is, okay, well, I'll go for five because it's not going to be more than seven and a half seconds. Come on. <laughs> okay, so number nine is where does the final scene of the film take place? Tunisia. Yeah. And... Ten is who is taller, Mulder or Scully? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I'm assuming, um, it's not quite clear by the question, but I'm assuming that you're talking about Fox William Mulder and Dana Catherine Scully. If that is uh, accurate, then I'm going to go with Fox William Mulder is actually taller. You are correct. (laughs) I think you went way too easy on him. I, yeah, I think so too. Questions. I if I had I I think Jess was a little bit busy. What with sick family members, but I would. Man, you could have been suffering right now if I wrote your questions. Um, uh, I screwed up on that first one about when the, the movie opened. I'm going to blame Jess's poor wording of that question. Uh, <laughs> it's fine. It's but fine. yeah, the bar one I would not have gotten. And uh, Casey's. We've well. We've all been to Casey's. Yeah, yeah we've been to Casey's. No, so I knew you've mentioned the name of it before, but yeah, yeah it's I... a it's a good bar. It um, really is. Yeah, it looks a little bit different, but it's mostly the same. So, and there's a picture of me like accidentally trying to walk into the other restroom, like Mulder reenacting it. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to do the whole monologue at the bar, but there were people there, and it was a little weird, so I didn't. We'll do it next time. Okay. Next time. Okay, let's go ahead and wrap it up there. Uh, Folks listening, if you want to get more of what we're putting down, uh, go to xfilestalkxfiles.com, go to xfilesnews.com, and uh, you can find everybody's contact details from one of those two sources. So, uh, uh, Avi, uh, Roy, Kai, thank you so much for being a part of this tonight. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, thank Definitely. you for listening to me. Thanks, David. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I hope that people listening uh, have enjoyed listening to all of us as well. Um, this podcast will return next week, and we're going to discuss the first bunch of episodes from X-Files The Next Generation, starring agents Spender and Fowley. I can't wait. Ooh, yes. <laughs> She's evil. <laughs> evil. Don't sound so defeated, David. All right. (laughs) Should I go grab a snack for this? Yes. (laughs) But this is what happened to Krychek that he uh, was sitting there in the apartment. He didn't realize everything that was going on because he's listening to this theory on his headphones and it just took a few days. (laughs)